You have lots of options for men's sexual dysfunction, but for women, the same isn't true. For many women, they experience arousal before desire, and so they learn that they have to seek out things to to make them feel aroused in order to desire. I was very scared um, and had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh, I'm going to fundraise and I'm going to like be a CEO. What do these things even mean? Welcome to the Beyond Capital podcast. In our purpose-driven world, leadership is increasingly crucial. Now, more than ever, stakeholders are demanding the integration of social values and causes in everything from shoes to soap to investments. We are bringing you the stories of leaders that are marrying profit with purpose. I'm Eva Yazari, the CEO of Beyond Capital. And I'm Ed Stevens, CEO of Appreciate. And this is the Beyond Capital Podcast. Today's guest is Lindsay Harper. Lindsay is the founder and CEO of Rosie. We have the pleasure of having her in the Beyond Capital studios today. Rosie is a sexual wellness platform connecting women with low libido to resources and community. Lindsay is also a board-certified practicing OBGYN and a professor at Texas A&M. Forbes has named her as one of the top 50 women disrupting healthcare. Welcome, Lindsay. It's so great to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate y'all. Absolutely. In the studio. In the studio. Yes, we love to do in-person interviews. Absolutely. So let's kick it off. Um, You know, I think across the world, sexual health remains a taboo subject in most circles um, for men and for women, but I think mostly for women. Why is it important to start a conversation about this and why have you decided to start that conversation? I cannot agree more that we don't talk about sexual health or sexual well-being. And what really highlighted this for me was when I um, was in private practice and my patients would come in literally on a daily basis, several times per day, and feel each patient would feel like she's the only one with this problem. She would come in maybe crying or worried about her partnership. Um, I had one patient tell me that she felt like if she told anybody, they would look at her like she had three heads. And I just wanted to convey to each of these women, you know what, you are not alone. You are not suffering with this all by yourself in isolation. 38% of women have low desire. 49% of women have some sort of sexual dysfunction. But the fact that no one talks about these things really amplifies all the shame and isolation and embarrassment that these women feel. And that's completely unnecessary. If we can connect women to each other and also to legitimate resources, then we can, you know, already have a big therapeutic sort of journey with them by just introducing them to those resources. So I feel really passionately about starting conversations about women's sexual health and wellness, just so that people don't feel like they're the only ones suffering. And what are the unique challenges that happen for women with low libido? So um, women can have low libido for lots of reasons. It can be due to a medical problem. It can be due to a life change like having a baby or um, going through menopause. It can be through messaging from when they were younger. Maybe they were taught, you know, sex is bad, sex is dirty, don't let them take advantage of you. And then all of a sudden they're supposed to be sexual beings, able to connect with someone else. Um, So it can happen for lots of reasons. And unfortunately, the result of low libido can be less connectedness with your partner, obviously. Um, Also, these women have lower self-esteem, 
lower sexual self-confidence, um, and they really feel like a piece of their life is missing. If they want, at one time did have um, you know, what they considered to be a healthy level of desire, they really want to reconnect back with that piece of themselves and, and find um, how, to, how to be sexual again. And just getting to Rosie as, as a product, as an app, um, it's the first research-based technology solution for women. Um, who suffer from low libido. And how did you decide to turn this problem into an app? Well, I was, I just kept coming across it way too often. And I, as an OBGYN, wasn't trained on women's sexual dysfunction. So I think that that's another huge sort of discrepancy in society is that we know who treats men's sexual dysfunction, right? You go see a urologist or even your family doctor or your internist, and you can get, you have lots of options for men's sexual dysfunction. But for women, the same isn't true. I think if you were to ask, you know, just a woman, a, a patient, who do you think is supposed to treat women's sexual dysfunction, they would definitely say an OBGYN. But unfortunately, that's not the case. We're not trained. Really? Really, which is still shocking. So That is shocking. Yes. So I really became motivated to learn everything there was to learn. And once I did learn that there were evidence-based interventions, I joined and became a fellow of a medical society called ISWISH, which they're dedicated to women's sexual health. Then I thought, you know, really, not only do we have a need for all these women who are suffering in silence, but we have a need for their providers, their healthcare teams as well, to institute these tools um, in a way that's respectful to patients. So um, my husband is also an entrepreneur and has trained me over many years <laughs> to always be looking for problems. What can you uniquely solve? What do you have perspective on that no one else does? And for me, that was this. And I really um, became passionate about creating a platform that physicians could recommend and that patients could find answers for all these problems. And that's what that's what Rosie is. And tell us a little bit more about how the app works when once you open it. So when a woman downloads Rosie, the first um, thing that she interacts with is a video. And really that video is just to welcome her to the Rosie community and to reassure her that in fact she's not alone. That someone, you know, recognized that 38% of women have this problem and she's no longer suffering by herself. And then she goes through a standardized questionnaire that we call the sexual wellness score. And she gets a score that sort of tells her where she's starting. And then we're able to track that score monthly as she uses Rosie. In addition, that score allows us to curate her content once she gets into the app where she'll find educational videos. So if a woman is menopausal with pain, she'll have different content than a woman who's just had a baby and is maybe tired and stressed. Um, in addition, we have a library of erotica, which is another evidence-based tool to improve desire. For many women, they experience arousal before desire, and so they learn that they have to seek out things to, to make them feel aroused in order to desire to have an intimate interaction. So that's how we use that erotica, and that can also be tailored according to spice level. So we have romantic, like the notebook, all the way to erotic. Um, and then we have lots of, I think, nine different genres. So women. How many can, spice levels are there? There's three, three spice levels. Okay. <laughs> Um, and then there are nine different genres um, of erotica. So it allows women to really tailor it to their tastes. And um, we have self-help with a psychologist, Dr. Lori Mintz from the University of Florida, who created content to teach women how to talk to their partners about what they're experiencing, how to experience pleasure, how to reconnect with their sexuality. Um, and we're creating new content for that part of the app all the time. We just created a new breast cancer 
um, course for women who have suffered during and after treatment um, and never been counseled about sexuality. We hear about that all the time. Um, and then mm-hmm. the last part is community, where our users can speak with and interact with one another and really start to build those um, relationships around these problems. I was going to ask if there was a network effect with the yeah, product. Absolutely. Is that pretty popular? It is. Yeah, we just launched it in January, um, but we definitely have women talking to one another, women saying, oh my gosh, I thought this was only me. I'm so glad to be connected with other people going through the same thing. We release a new topic um, every week or so where women can kind of convene around the topic and start more conversations. So yeah, we've been very pleased with the interaction that we've seen. One thing that's always interesting about business models is sort of what happens when you're successful with your customer And so one of the challenges I think with this business might be that when you help your customer, she may not any longer need your service. Is that something that you think about? Yeah, absolutely. And we've been asked that probably since day one. Like if you're successful, then doesn't your customer not need you anymore? Mm -hmm. But really um, the way that we think about sexual desire and sexual well-being is actually a lot like fitness. Um, And just because you might be in shape doesn't mean you need to kind of um, abandon your efforts. So for many women, once they receive the education um, at the beginning of their experience, then oftentimes they use Rosie as their tool to continue, you know, being sexually sort of well or fit um, with the erotica and then with the new content that we, you know, share all the time. So we, we continue to provide value to those users. What was it like transitioning from an OBGYN to essentially a, a tech software entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, it's still like still thinking about it now is unbelievable. Um, it's been so fun. I've really relished it. I was very scared um, and had no idea what I was doing. I was like, oh, I'm going to fundraise and I'm going to like be a CEO. What do these things even mean? Um, but I've had so much support and so many, you know, cheerleaders, truly. Um, and I have a wonderful team now that I just, it's such a gift. And I really enjoy it so much every day. I'm doing things still, and I will continue to do so. I'm convinced that I have never done before all the time. And that's definitely unsettling for a type A, like prepared, good student. Um, but it's very exciting to explore different, you know, parts of myself, of the world, um, of creativity that I wasn't tapping into before. And I'm so, so thankful for the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, it's, it sounds like it's a lot of fun and I could see the passion in, I can hear the passion um, in your words. Um, I think I would love to maybe pivot to what Lindsay's personal life looks like a little bit sure. so we could get to know you. <laughs> I know you have three kids. Yes. Um, and you, I, I know you do a lot, which is it's incredible to watch on social media. Um, but what does your morning routine look like? What gets you excited for solving the world's problems? Yes. So um, in the last year, I have become a fan of this hour of power idea. And so I wake up, my kids wake up around 6.30 or 6.45. So I try to wake up like an hour before they do. Um, so that's about 5.30. And I, um, at the beginning of the year, set a bunch of goals and then sort of track those um, in a sort of, you know, monthly basis. And then I do a lot of journaling, a lot of thought downloads, all of those things in the morning. So those are my practices. I also read a lot of um, personal and professional development and just really, you know, new things come out of those all the time. New, 
new exercises I want to try, both mentally and physically, um, new ways of thinking about things. And so I constantly find myself going back to my journal and to my sort of goal-setting calendar and revising and reworking and just really, truly feeling energized by that work for sure. That's great. And what happens after the hour of power? Chaos ensues. <laughs> yeah, so the we hour just of calm. Being, yeah. yeah, the hour of solitude. <laughs> it's so good for me though, because literally every other moment is just chaos, you know? Yeah. So yeah, all three of my kids get up and then there's breakfast and there's where's your homework and please put on your socks and you know, all the things. I have a nine-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a four-year-old. So some of them are definitely more self-sufficient than others. Um, but we're working on it, you know, and things are things are calming down from the baby years. So I'm thankful for that, for sure. Now, the most important question, though, is coffee, tea, or caffeine-free? Oh, coffee. Coffee all coffee, the way. yes. Did you put green stuff in your coffee or mushrooms or anything? No. See? People aren't <laughs> doing that. People don't do that. <laughs> Eva has black. Eva Eva has mushroom coffee. I drink mushroom coffee every morning. Yeah, we have some at our house, but I've never had any, so I need to try it for sure. Yeah, I need to try it too. Yeah, I'll make sure that you guys both get to try. (laughs) So, what does Rosie's social impact look like, or how do you think about the social impact of the business? So, you know, Rosie, part of our mission is really to erase sexual shame and embarrassment for women. And that's really the only way that our business is successful. So um, I spend a lot of time talking to big groups of women, talking to big groups of doctors about, you know, sexual health is a whole woman issue. And if we're ignoring that as a medical community, then we are ignoring a huge part of our patients and their well-being. So I think that there's a huge social impact that, you know, has to come before the success of the business. Um, and then as a result of the business, there's another opportunity. We were just able to um, share data at a medical conference last weekend about Rosie's efficacy, that actually Rosie does work as, a, as an intervention in improving not only desire, but also all aspects of um, sexuality, including arousal, orgasm, lubrication, and lessening pain. So, you know, I think when you think about what are the so- social impacts of being able to provide something like that for women, not only does it give them the confidence that they need, but it also can strengthen their partnership. It can strengthen relationships. If we're able to educate women on the correct terminology for their bodies, on pleasure, on aspects of sexual function, then my hope is really to be able to encourage them to teach their children the same concepts so that we don't repeat the pattern of sexual shame you know, for generations to come. So as far as like a go-to-market is mm-hmm. concerned, like, do you have different channels that you go through? Like, do you work through the doctor channel or, or ding, like, ding, just ding. like you do yes. and advertising too? So really this first year, so we launched just over a year ago, mm-hmm. our main channel has been um, through doctors and therapists. Mm-hmm. And so basically we just sort of announced to them that we existed and they, like me, had, you know, haven't been well trained on these issues, but they encounter this problem every day. So they're excited to have a, an evidence-based, you know, safe, reliable tool made by doctors and psychologists to recommend to their patients because not only is it a legitimate resource, but it saves them a bunch of time in the office. Mm-hmm. And so in the first year, our healthcare provider community has grown to over 2,500 doctors and therapists that are recommending Rosie to their patients. And, and is there an, something in it for them? Like, is there like a, 
or is it just something that's good for them to do? Um, so when they sign up, we send them a care package that does have a T-shirt in it, which we that's something in it for them. Sure. <laughs> um, and then also some patient cards that then they share with okay. their patients. Okay. But otherwise, we don't have a financial relationship with them. Okay. Yeah. You mentioned data, and I imagine that there is some health data within the app that you've created and you're kind of understanding women's behavior in this area. Um, how are you harnessing that, if at all? Yeah, so I think that, honestly, this is another place where we can have social impact. I think that this area has been, I know that this area has been completely underserved in terms of research and development and in terms of you know large data sets. And when I um, presented this um, poster last week, and we, our data set was 606 women, and that was you know, by a factor of probably 20x larger than the other studies that were there. So the data that we are able to collect is very meaningful, not only for us as a company and, and for product development, but also for the medical sort of body of knowledge of these women. Um, and there's so many ways to slice it and dice it. And I think as we grow as a company, this is a huge opportunity to inform the future of, you know, the field of women's sexual health because we have a lot of, of great information that will be used to only further the field. Yeah, and when you think about where the taboo actually comes from, do you think that there's a particular place? Because I, 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 do, I really do, I know, and whether it's here in the U.S. or in developing countries, that women's health is a taboo subject, but is it dare I say religion? Is it just family culture? Is it something else? I mean, I would love to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah, I think it's really complicated. I think it's probably a piece of all of those that you mentioned, culture, religion, um, this idea that I, I, what I think it stems from personally is that women's sexuality is a function of reproduction, A, or B, they're, they're usually male partner's pleasure, and so the idea of a female sexual dysfunction is only sort of secondary um, to those things. So, for example, um, you know, if a woman if a woman didn't desire sex, then that wasn't really like a pertinent finding in the past, right? Because it, she probably was having sex to procreate or to please her partner. I think in the minds of society, in the minds of you know, very conservative religious. Um, organizations or in the minds of, um, you know, certain cultures. And so I think the idea of women desiring sex just generally has only sort of come into discussion and into the medical literature in the past, um, you know, maybe 10 or 15 years. That's when it's really been given any weight. And that's why we're so far behind, just because I think a lot, you know, a lot of things are changing, obviously, in the world. And I think that just like we're expecting equality in other places, this is the sort of the time where we're um, expecting equality for sexuality as well. I think there's a lot of, um, you know, big differences between men and women on this subject. But one thing that probably is the same is just the stigma of dysfunction in itself. Sure. Right. So like if you've got friends and they're always talking about how great their sex life is, you're probably not just going to be like, yeah, me too. You know, yeah. like, oh, but me, no, actually, I don't ha have any of that. Right. Because it's just kind of very distancing. And I think that's the same. I know that's the case for men. Sure. It's got to be the case for women, too. Nobody wants to be the person who doesn't yeah. have a great sex life. Yeah. Right? I think, I so think, that's a little bit different even than what you were saying. Sure. I think it, you know, 
whatever our sex life is or isn't sort of we have taken it into you know our part of our sort of external representation to the world you know it becomes a part of who we are right um and so i think that whenever we sort of seemingly think that it's dysfunctional or something's wrong with it then that feels very personal but i think the bigger message here is that even if people are broadcasting that they have you know, the best sex life ever, there probably is something going on there too. You know what I mean? So I think that spreading the message about yeah. dysfunction really is the important, and the and the incidence is the important thing because, you know, when you find out that 49% of women have something going on, that can be really sort of relieving, I think, for a lot of women who maybe are hearing that type of messaging. Where are most of your users based? So they're all over the country. We are only available in the United States right now, but anybody with an iTunes, a U.S. iTunes account can download it. So actually in our heat map, they're in other continents as well, but that's just because they have U.S. iTunes accounts. Fascinating. Yes, it's very fun to look at that map. (laughs) And do you have users in the LGBTQ community? We do, absolutely. And we have um, content in the erotica specifically, LGBTQ, and we're developing new content with um, LGBTQ sort of um, voices right now in order to make sure that we're, you know, speaking to all audiences. It's definitely Rosie's um, mission to be inclusive and to erase shame. So if we were to leave out, you know, certain populations, we would not be true to that mission. How much does it cost? So the educational, I'm dying to know. <laughs> the educational videos are free for all. So download them and check them out. Um, the erotica and the self-help um, are $10 a month or $50 for six months. Okay. Yeah. Have you encountered any social kind of stigma in starting this company yourself? You know, I thought that I would. And I, um, my um, friend before I started Rosie was like, what do you think? How are you, how do you think people are going to change the way that they view you? You know, when you do this, what are your parents going to say? What are your kids' friends' parents going to say? You know, this kind of like, what will, what will people think? And when she, when she brought that up to me, honestly, it hadn't really crossed my mind. And I spent maybe five minutes thinking about it. And I came to the conclusion, you know, that is exactly the reason that I have to start this company because, because people are scared about what they might think of you. So I have not really ever had a lot of fear about it. I definitely thought I might have trouble fundraising um, that there might be some like social, you know, stuff on social. But honestly, it's been even for the uh, for the investors that I've pitched that have said no, everyone's connected, or at least they've told me they've connected. Um, and I think that you know this is core to who we all are in some way or another. And through empathy and compassion, people can really understand what a problem this could be. And um, and I haven't really gotten any judgment, at least to my face. So <laughs> I'll say that much. Well, I would say that when you are seeing those demand signals from people every day yeah. while you're practicing as a doctor, it would be hard to look away from that. 100%. It was impossible for me to look away from it. And once I yeah. realized it and I looked for anything like it and couldn't find it, that's what really compelled me to do it because I was like, I'm not sure that it's going to happen otherwise, you know? So I felt really like I had to do it, honestly. So do you think it's going to become a really big business or you do? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that Rosie will be sort of the brand for women's sexual health. And then um, I think there's lots of opportunities the way that we're building this model to expand that to other areas of underserved women's health as well. Absolutely. It's a great time. I'm sure you saw the Goop Lab 
show. He did, on, yes. On female sexuality. I think the conversation is really opening up. And the next generation of certainly millennials and perhaps Gen Zers will be more open-minded about this topic. I certainly hope so. And I, um, I'm a huge fan of Betty Dodson and really appreciated that for sure. Yeah. I mean, if anything, the, the only threat to the business is that the issue becomes too well known. Sure. sure. You know, and then it's just readily available and common knowledge. Sure. But yeah. I guess if that happened, you would be satisfied, at least from a, from a purpose-driven standpoint. But I mean, you probably think it's going to still, there's still going to be a need for this, but. Absolutely. I think it, you know, in order to get to the goal that we want to accomplish is going to take decades, honestly. Like I love the trends, yeah. um, but I do think that it's much more prevalent and for younger people. I think there's still a huge audience of people, you know, 30 and up. 35 and up who really need a lot of resources. And, you know, the other side of that is that even when people are educated and they're more open to talking about things, that doesn't mean that they're still not going to have problems. And they're going to need, you know, a place to turn um, in order to find solutions to those. And so we offer that as well. How has the fundraising been for you? Yeah, I mean, fundraising is never easy. It was a long process, um, but I I really loved it. I, I did. I loved, like, meeting new people. I loved um, every single check that was written for Rosie. Like I feel like personally like so grateful for because I believe in this so much. I'm a first time founder and I just feel like that's such a gift, you know, that someone believes in you and believes in, in what you're building so much that they write you a check. I mean, that's amazing. So, and I also really loved the opportunity to just talk about this in lots of different places and you know, in San Francisco, in New York, in Dallas, like all over the country, and to really just raise that awareness. Um, and the response that we've received has been really positive. So, I mean, it's never fun to, to get a no, but I relish every opportunity to talk about the business for sure. I always would get really motivated by the no's because mm. I actually am sort of like, I know you can't tell, but I, I like have this like motivation by negativity like I want to prove people wrong, mm -hmm. you know, when they, when they bet against me, I just look and just say, you just made a huge mistake. I'm going <laughs> to so prove you wrong right now. You're just so wrong about me. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, that's or not no? a natural part that's of my personality. No. no, I'm more like, okay, that's well so tell me why, first of all, so I can like know from your mind what's going on yeah. and then also introduce me to five more people. Like, let's keep going. Do you know what I mean? Like, cause for my mind, it's only a matter of time and it's just how fast could I like get to the end? With my last company, I, I've done a bunch of different fundraisings. There was a VC in Santa Barbara who passed on my last company and the greatest pleasure that I had was after we had exited. And it was a great exit. And he was, and I met him and, I, and he was just like, yep, I knew I should have done that deal. You know, but, <laughs> you were the one that got away. Yeah. There it was like go. 10 years later. I was just like, <laughs> come on, man. It was right there in front of you. Softball. Everybody's motivated by different things <laughs> for right. sure. Yeah. So you mentioned, uh, Lindsay, the, that there are other underserved parts of women's health. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, when you, when you are a women's health um, 
sort of advocate and professional, I think it becomes very obvious, like all the holes. Um, you know, there's this whole area of endometriosis. We still, even when I like counsel my patients about endometriosis, I have to say like, we don't really know why this happens. I mean, it's insane that this is such a huge problem. 10% of women have endometriosis. It's debilitating. It's chronic. And we don't even know like why it's happening, right? So there's a huge underserved area there. Um, in pregnancy, go ahead. What is it? Oh, sorry. My if, bad. If, yeah. yeah. Well, no, I'm sorry. So, yeah. I'm sorry. I should probably know. <laughs> That's it's how insensitive totally of me. No, not at all. So basically the tissue that is the same tissue that grows every month when a woman has her, like her cycle, um, that tissue can um, go into the abdomen, so into the abdominal cavity. So it belongs in the uterus, but it can go, and this is the part we don't know is how it gets there, if it's there from birth or if it travels through the tubes out into the abdominal cavity. Oh, and okay. so then every time, every month at the time of when her period is, that tissue grows and bleeds just like the lining of the uterus, and it causes like debilitating pain for many, many women. And it can grow all in the abdomen. It can grow oh. um, on the colon. and 10%? Cause, yeah, it's really, it's really intense. And we don't... There's so many missing pieces to that puzzle because there, women can have a ton of endometriosis but not have a lot of pain. Women can have very small amount of endometriosis and have a ton of pain. So it's kind of all over the map. The only way we can diagnose this is, is with surgery. So they have to undergo like a surgical procedure for us to even know for sure if they have it. So there's many, many you know missed opportunities and missing steps. And it's just because there's not been a lot of, once again, funding, research development devoted to that space. Um, so that's a huge opportunity for sure. Um, you know, pregnancy is another just really, I mean, just sad area. Like I love pregnancy. I love birth, but we haven't really made a lot of great advances in the past, you know, maybe hundred years. Um, there's a lot of um, pregnancy induced illnesses like preeclampsia that, um, you know, come on for in a lot of pregnancies and we're still using the same medications that we've used for decades um, that really just don't work that well. And so there's a ton. I mean, I could go on for 30 more minutes. There's a ton of opportunities in women's health. Well, it's I'm fascinating. Cur- yeah, it is. Um, I was going to try to shift gears to just sort of like being a tech entrepreneur in Dallas. Okay. Which is not something that mm-hmm. everybody would think about. Um, and I had my last company in California. It was in the central coast of California, but for everybody else in the world, when I would tell them I was in California, like, oh, yeah, that's where all the tech companies are, even though we were three hours from San Francisco. Um, in Dallas, though, that's not the case. A lot of people be like, oh, really? They don't think, oh, tech company. So you're in San Francisco pitching or you're in New York pitching. Mm-hmm. Tell me what you think about starting a tech company in Dallas. I mean, you know, it's all I've ever known, first of all, but I haven't found it to be... Um, you know, a big challenge necessarily. I think that the tech sort of community here is pretty tightly woven. And with that, there comes a lot of support. I mean, people want to see other people in this community succeed. So I think in other, um, you know, major markets, it's maybe a lot more competitive and maybe more cutthroat and people aren't looking to see how can I help you as much as they are here in Dallas. And, you know, we've had tons of support. People emailing me all the time. Oh, did you see this? Did you see this? I think this investor might be interested. Let me intro you. All kinds of just help like that all the time. I have no experience, obviously, um, with a company anywhere else, but that's been a super um, exciting part of being in Dallas. I think that there's challenges when it comes to, you know, talent. There's not as much talent as you might find in others of those cities, but also there's not as many people 
hiring. And so then therefore you're able to build a company with a lower burn because your engineers don't cost as much. And that's attractive to people who are investing from the coast because you're just able to operate at a lower cost and, um, and still do right by your employees. So I think there's definitely some advantages. Yeah, I would agree with all that for sure. That's been my experience. And what's your leadership style, Lindsay? Oh, I'm very, um, okay, I have, <laughs> I love that. What would I your have, team say about your leadership I would, style? Yeah, this is good. <laughs> I have high expectations, but I'm very um, in touch with sort of where people are emotionally. So, like, I um, I, I think that, and I've heard this in the past, that, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a person that necessarily you maybe want to disappoint, um, but that I will be there for you. Like if you're going through something or if you've set a timeline and it's not going to happen, like we will figure it out. I just want to know about it, right? Um, so yeah, I try to be really supportive. We do a ton of personal development because that's been such an important part of my journey. We talk a lot about boundaries, a lot about um, prioritizing goals to, to match up with your priorities. Um, and, you know, I really want the, we are an all-female team right now of four, which just brings me so much joy. And I want these women, when they go on to whatever is next for them, to be, to grow as a, you know, as a um, employee, but also as a person, as a woman. And I just want to do right by them because they, just like all these investors that wrote me a check, these women have taken a huge risk. They left their jobs. They came to work for this baby startup. And I just want to honor that, you know, in the best way that I know how. And that's definitely by supporting them while also building a successful company so that we can all sort of thrive together. Amazing. And what is your big vision for the company? I know you talked about the additional areas that you can add on, but is there anything else that we missed? I mean, I definitely see Rosie as a trusted sort of comprehensive brand for addressing women's health holistically. So not only do we have all these educational pieces, behavioral interventions, community, but also really really building out the mental and medical health sides of the company. Um, and then being able to replicate that, like we talked about for other areas of women's health, I see a huge national opportunity for Rosie. I see a huge international opportunity for Rosie. Um, and I really just want to be, you know, at the forefront of fighting for um, better resources for women, less shame, less isolation, and really having that social impact that we all sort of wake up for every day. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the Beyond Capital podcast. I'm really inspired by your vision um, particularly from a social impact perspective, but it's really a win-win vision, I think, for everybody to to help women in this area um, to better their lives. And I'm just really inspired by your commitment. Yay. Well, thank y'all so much for having me. This is so fun. Yeah, it was great having you. Appreciate y'all. Thank you. Once again, it's clear that a business leader with good intentions can create an impressive social, environmental, and ethical impact. There is always a way to put meaning behind the mission of a company, and we can all make a difference. You've taken the first step by listening to the Beyond Capital podcast. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to rate, review, and if you haven't yet, subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. For more information, go to beyondcapitalpodcast.com. You can follow me on Twitter at EA Stevens. And follow me on Instagram at Conscious Investor. Until next time. Bye, everyone. Thank you.